Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor and counterculture. My name is Tim Lawrence and as always I'm joined by my good friend Jem Gilbert. Hi Jem. Hi. How are you? I'm fine, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, recovering just about in time from a, a big party at the weekend, so that's always a nice thing to kind of experience, although not so good always for getting one's act together to do a podcast recording. Uh, anyway, we're deep into our third series on Afro-Psychedelia, and uh, in today's episode, we're going to return to Cuba, which we had dedicated the last show to, and we had managed to get up just about to uh, 1959 and the eve of the uh, Cuban Revolution. So um, that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, Jem, do you want to get us going with uh, this momentous shift that took place in the island in that year? Yeah, well, the Cuban Revolution is a really extraordinary event. I mean, the revolution as such is usually said to have taken place over several years, mm. starting in 53 and ending in 59 with on New Year's Day with the Battle of Santa Clara, which is when Batista, the military dictator's forces, were beat, defeated by the forces led by Che Guevara in Santa Clara, in the city, which is on the centre of the island. And in many ways, Cuba is the sort of ideal, typical socialist revolution of the 20th century. You know, historians are never going to stop debating the Russian revolution, whether it, whether the Bolsheviks basically did a coup and the revolutionary forces who really had the most legitimacy were the social, re social revolutionaries and the Mensheviks or etc. It's always debatable, you know, how much popular support the whole socialist program had in places like Russia and China. Um, but it's not really debatable in Cuba. Cuba's like one example you can point to. It's a, where you can say, here there was a revolution, the revolution went from being a source of national popular revolution to having a distinctively socialist, against a corrupt elite government and it went from having a clearly defined socialist character or it went to that in a relatively short space of time. <clears throat> and then after the revolution, the revolutionary socialist project of that government retained mass popular support really for decades and produced a really distinctive sort of society. I've never been there. I'm only going on hearsay and what I've read and heard. But the most reliable reports I've always had from people who've been to Cuba are that, well, indeed... You know, if you judge it by the standards that Western capitalist societies like to judge themselves, like the level of material consumer comfort, then it, it's a pretty poor society and with a fairly degraded material culture. But if you judge it by other standards, like the levels of literacy, the standards of healthcare, and also in more intangible ways, you know, the sense of social solidarity, the sense of general social optimism, then... There is people often say there's something, nothing uniquely positive about it, as you might expect from a society that has those features. So I don't that this is all speculative from our point of view. But the Cuban Revolution, it starts off really with you know, Cuba's been in political turmoil from I mean, really arguably for most of its history, but definitely through the middle decades of the 20th century. It's been it, it, it's really like a lot of countries it's seen a succession of government and military coups the dominant political figure from really from 1933 is Fulgencio Batista who 
goes through different periods. Sometimes he's a military dictator. At one time, he does actually seem to win a government, uh, win a, an election and become president on a popular mandate in the 40s. Uh, he spent a bit of time living in Florida in, uh, in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, then he comes back to fight another election, which he's going to lose. So he therefore just leads a military coup backed by the US and becomes the dictator again. Cuba, as we said last time, is very unstable and has a notoriously corrupt and dysfunctional governmental system to the point where you know, the Americans are constantly worrying about it, not just from the point of view of wanting to suppress socialist revolutionary tendencies, but also from the point of view of it just being this kind of dysfunctional country just off the coast of Florida, which is pretty much notoriously a base for mafia operations and is run by this corrupt government which is has very close relationships with the mafia so um so 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 maybe maybe quite like the united states then yeah yeah well this is i mean this is you know it's worth keeping on this is the this is the goal this is the moment of the emergence of the american military industrial complex of the of america as the globe the nuclear power the globe spanning you know titan of the nuclear age in its you know the american sort of system of government including the, its security services and their extent the extension of their power all over the developing world in particular is really in its pomp at this moment and cuba is this sort of affront to them cuba is sort of an affront to them even before it becomes communist so they're worried about it and it doesn't really seem to and it seems to be problematic and difficult to control. And they keep trying to back, essentially, the Americans back Batista. But the, and then during all this period, during the period from 1953 up to 1959, there's growing student unrest, there's worker unrest. The party that eventually becomes the Communist Party, which is, is, a, is a sort of popular, it goes through several identities. It's a, it's a party of general popular resistance, and then it's a, a officially a socialist party, and eventually it becomes affiliated to the Communist International that becomes part of the global communist movement, officially affiliated to the Soviet Union and its Communist Party. And as the participants in the revolutionary process themselves become radicalised and to some extent become influenced by this kind of support they're getting from the Soviets. And so, and the actually, the America, the one of the things we're going to have to talk about is the embargo, mm. the economic and cultural embargo imposed by the United States on Cuba. And actually, this starts in 58. It starts before the revolution is completed. And it's a military embargo, partly because it's not totally clear where like American sympathies ought to lie. They, they backed Batista, but they didn't, they backed Batista when he was sort of trying to promote a, a, re, a, a sort of populist program against the highly corrupt elites who had been running the country. So it's not simply a matter of them backing the sort of the established elites. What they really, what the Americans really would like in Cuba, is a government which is firmly on the American side in the Cold War, but is willing to sort of modernize the country and even implement some progressive reforms. But it's just quite clear that they can't have that. But the embargo initially is an embargo to prevent arms being sold to the Batista regime, um, mm. which is undertaking violent repression of the student movement, the workers' movement, the growing guerrilla movement. 
etc. And then, well, absolutely. I mean, the the U the U the United States had already had this history of you know just being prepared to back whichever government it thought would best protect its kind of its its own sphere of influence and its own business interests. So it was already well, of course, already, it already flipped a few times. You know, it would go on to do this. You know regularly during the rest of the course of the 20th and 21st century especially in the in the middle east especially between iraq and iran trying to work out you know who it wants to be friends with and who it wants to kind of you know get rid yeah, of so. absolutely yes yeah. so that's a good analogy and it's a really good analogy and of, of course in, in latin america this has been established american policy since the mid 19th century it's mm. it, it, it it's it's the expression of what's still known in the states as the monroe doctrine which is associated with the president Monroe, who first formulated it in the mid-19th century. And that is the doctrine that basically whatever is going on in Latin America is America is the is the business of the United States. It's it's America's backyard, and they they claim the right to intervene in any way they see fit in that space. And so, of course, by the time we're talking about, you you'd already had the the CIA backed coups against democratically elected socialist governments in places. Where was it? Was it Paraguay, the United Fruit Company? Guatemala. In Guatemala. In that that happened in 54, the big coup, which is just basically open, which is really just op- the CIA openly backing the interests of these huge American fruit, um, fruit importers against the... Uh, democratically elected government of Guatemala, which is threatening to nationalize some of their resources. So um, but did, but it's when the when the uh, when Castro sort of came to you know came to power effectively, the US initially backed him, didn't they? I think even on the basis that they thought he would be potentially significant and that Cuba would remain within you know, Americans kind of sphere. Of yeah, influence. they did. They, I think that the American security state was always ambivalent, but they did sort of, yeah, they thought he, I mean, Batista obviously wasn't working and they brought mm. in the embargo to stop arms being sent to Batista in 58. Mm. But then once the revolution was concluded in, in 59, um, within a short space of time, it became clear as it hadn't been fully clear to the Americans before that, that this new Cuban regime was going to uh, directly affiliate itself with the Soviet Union. And from 1960 onwards, really, the policy of the Americans is to not to engage in a military confrontation with the Cuban regime, but deliberately to attempt to starve them out, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this was a spectacular failure over mm. many decades. But it it did, and it does to this day actually have an impact on music culture to the extent that you, know, you can't just like have musicians from Cuba going to America and going back and going back and forth, and you can't just have recorded recordings going back and forth because there's a effectively an embargo yeah, and any course. kind of trade with Cuba. Now, the revolutionary process, if you like, the, the, the revolutionary government led by Fidel Castro, who will lead it until his death, you know, decades later, is in place from 59 onwards. And the thing that most interests us from a point of view of being interested in the development of music is what the attitude of that regime was to music and music culture, and I guess other aspects of culture generally, over that period, because in a socialist country, in a country with a socialist, a genuinely socialist country, a country in which the state is actually taking full control of the economy, then it really has a massive impact on culture, what governments do. I mean, it's really up to the government what kind of 
culture will get funded, what will be supported, etc. And so changes in government policy, changes in government attitude can have a huge impact on uh, the lives of musicians and on the kinds of music that get supported. And in the earliest period, in the initial few years following the 59 revolution, the conclusion of the revolution in 59, really, into the early 60s, up until sort of 64, 65, I think, um, maybe even a bit later. The general tendency is that, well, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of convergence between ordinary sort of popular musical forms and the, um, and the general popular enthusiasm for the revolution and the revolutionary government. So, and one of my main sources for researching this is a great book by Timothy Brennan, a really important American scholar of um, an American sort of cultural historian and cultural theorist, and his book Secular Devotion, uh, Afro-Latin Music and Imperial Jazz. I think we probably mentioned last time. So he cites, for example, this record, which I don't know much, that much about, apart from that he cited it, which is, a, this is a song by a song called uh, Yo, Yo Si Tumbo Kanya by uh, Quarteto Daida, which I think just means, um, you know, Aida Quartet. And it's a sort of fairly typical popular kind of big band dance tune. Uh, with them all the vocalists are all women i presume all the musicians weren't all women and i don't know what the lyric is because i don't speak spanish but but it's as i understand it it's a general sort of yeah enthusiastic celebration of uh, the post-revolutionary condition of cuba at the time so we can hear a bit of that And I think the significant thing about what's going on with Cuban music then at this time in relation to the politics of the revolution is that there is a general um, there is a general convergence between popular commercial forms and popular enthusiasm for the revolution and that convergence is not going to continue throughout the next period that we're going to talk about that there is going to be significant divergence if you like at least insofar as for the first few years basically the cuban government the new revolutionary regime just has other things to worry about than culture you know it's worried about making sure you know, the trains run on time, in effect, making sure that people have food, making sure... The Bay of Pigs. Yeah, the Bay of Pigs. There's an attempted, unsuccessful invasion by the United States. Well, is it an attempted invasion? Not, no, it's still debated to this day what actually happens with the Bay of Pigs. Well, was a bunch of Cuban reactionaries. Oh, exiles, and, wasn't it? Yeah, exiles based in Florida and elements of the American security services attempt to stage an invasion. And... There was disagreement over whether they had been promised air support by Kennedy um, 
from and they don't get air support from the USAF. Like Kennedy refuses to authorize air support, therefore it's an embarrassing failure. Mm. Uh, their attempt to land at the Bay of Pigs in Cuba and stage a counter coup, and of course, it, it's a very popular theory among the people who study the assassination of Kennedy that one of the motivations for his assassination by elements of the security services was revenge for the humiliation they had endured in because of his refusal to endorse to authorize airstrikes against the against Cuba as part of that invasion. I've got no idea if that's true, but it obviously is. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, um, so, but yeah, there's a lot of other stuff going on. The Cuban you know. Missile Crisis. <laughs> yeah. Cuban Missile speak? Crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. yeah which, that kind of, that's, that's like, it's even less than it is, but is it a year? It's, it's just about a year later, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, it kind of comes out. Right. It comes out of that that failed attempt to overthrow the the, re, the Castro government. Yeah, so it's basically about there's a there's a standoff between the the Soviet Union over, and the United States over whether the Soviet nuclear missiles will be based in Cuba um, as 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 defence for Cuban regime, and in the end, uh, in the end, they're not. In the in the end, there's a kind of negotiated. Settlement, and I think missile Cuba, Soviet missiles are not stay, stationed in Cuba, and the, but America basically agrees that they're not going to stay. I think that one of the things that I I think this may have only come out fairly recently, though I could be wrong about that, is that there was the deal that that um, was was fairly surreptitious. Was that in return the United States would you know um, turn nuclear weapons that were already or that were going to be based in I think in Turkey in Maybe I've got yeah, that's wrong, right. Yeah, in yeah. the other direction. So um, I'm not sure if that came out of came out of the time. I always, you know, I do inevitably remember that you know um, David Mancuso had visited. I can't remember if he had visited New York once or if he was going to visit New York for the first time. And it was the weekend. Sorry, if it, yeah, it was anyway. It, then it was the weekend of the peak of the Cuban Missile Crisis that he sort of went travel to new york i think it might have been for the first time uh because it was like well you know if if this if we're if we're if the, if the world is going to blow up basically sometime next week then i want to at least have a have a good weekend in new york yeah yeah that that's right because <laughs> people still i mean people who are old enough to remember still talk about this what year was it the cuban missile crisis 62 62 62 yeah I mean, that's before we were born, but people still talk about it as the moment when people really thought that there might be a nuclear exchange mm. between the Soviet Union and the United States and the, the sort of proxy wars between them sort of came to a head. Of course, they didn't really. The, pro- the proxy wars were going to accelerate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, my memory of <laughs> In the, South Asia, you know. Yeah, South but East also Asia. in the second half of the year, you know, was it even the, the I guess, the early 80s when... The, yeah, exactly true. When there was, you know, massive nuclear proliferation and uh, up, yeah. an upping of the the aggressive rhetoric on both sides. And, you know, the most brutal of all the interventions in Latin America as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so this wasn't just an artefact of the early 60s, really. This, no. poli- this pol- political configuration would carry on and to some extent the problems would intensify right up until the mid 80s mm. so so but, there's a lot going on in there's Cuba, a lot going on Cuba, just, know, there's Cuba a lot very, going on 
Cuba is obviously at the very fore, you know, it's couldn't, I mean, physic geographically, it could hardly be closer to the United States. So for it all, for, for it to have been going through this, you know, major socialist and then communist trend, I mean, that's what Castro described as, it as, he declared, I think, his government to be socialist and then not quite sure how many years later or how many months later to be communist, but for this all to be going on on the doorstep of the United States during an age of nuclear Nuclear expansion is obviously the stakes are very very high. The stakes are very high, and it is you know <clears throat> it's widely seen internationally as a sort of front line in the struggle against imperialism. This is going on at precisely the same time as the Algerian War of Independence, mm. <clears throat> which is sort of the last stand of the French Empire. Yeah, I was going to. I mean, are you going to talk because there, there, we, there, we there's the what happens in the music. I don't know if you're going to say some more about what goes on in the in the music economy, but there's there is this you know there is a you know, there is this nationalization of, of the record companies and of indeed, I think one of the reasons that the embargo was introduced in the first place or, or reinforced uh, was because the there was the nationalization of kind of numerous uh, American companies as well. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah. So this was, you know, as you were saying, it was a kind of, it was a radical, it was a kind of radical program that was put into effect. But maybe the uh, the upshot for music wasn't wasn't actually straightforwardly you know, productive. I mean, there were, I don't know, but I, maybe you were going to speak more about this anyway. Well, I just don't think it had a huge impact on music initially. So they nationalised record companies, but the, but initially the music they were putting out was just the same music they'd been putting out before with the same artists. So for the first few years, I think this is the point, for the first few years, because really there wasn't really a cultural policy, there was an economic policy of nationalisation, but there wasn't really a cultural policy as such for the first few years of the revolution that people just sort of got on with it and were producing largely similar music. And well, you say that, but I don't. I mean, it'd be interesting to if maybe you know this. The years when when all of this kind of evolved, um, but there was there was one you know at one point. I mean, uh, what what year it was? I'm not entirely sure, but there was a state a single state record company called Egrem was formed. And there were no independent record companies, and um, and it was the you know the the output of this record company was dictated by the state effectively rather than, I guess what we might refer to as the marketplace. So it was quite dramatic. I'm sure there. I'm sure it's very rare to go from sort of everything to nothing overnight. But I do kind of think there was there was a big shift in the way that the music industry was being run, and that you know because partly because of the you know. New emphasis on you know the 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 capacity of of uh, you know private companies to operate and you know the fact that many you know many people were kind of including American citizens uh, and foreign citizen uh, foreign nationals uh, were leaving Cuba. There was a, I think a pretty rack rapid decline in the nightclub industry basically in the hotel industry in all of these places that were you know despite cuba's quite dysfunctional governance um for the opening decades of the 20th century um in which it was kind of you know more or less a puppet state in some respects there was this incredible musical dynamism and creativity for reasons we discussed in the last show and i do my understanding is that went into pretty rapid decline um during the 1960s um because that whole you know that whole international economy that was helping to generate that was closed down that's true but i think i mean i mean my you know most of the literature published on this says that the the real the, the really significant effects on the kind of musical output 
start to be felt from about 68 because there's a big shift in national policy. Mm. There's a shift from a general policy of nationalisation, which has, doesn't really impact that much upon musical output, which mm. isn't really interested in intervening in, in cultural production at the level of production, um, to a policy, uh, with to a, a new policy, which sees mu- a much more intensive wave of nationalisation of small businesses, for a start, which really starts in 68, and also sees a big a, a policy of really intervening in culture, of sort of taking over and aligning the production of culture with a socialist ideology, with the, with the particular socialist ideology being promoted by the government at that time. So it's the late sixties when you, there's a really significant transition, and it's in the late sixties when loads when musicians really start leaving, like in larger in larger numbers than they had done in the okay. first half of the sixties. All right. Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't. I wasn't aware it was. I had been under the impression that it was earlier than that. Earlier into the into Castro's rule. The, the, I, mean, I know that Celia Cruz and Cachao and others were. Yeah, I'm sure they left the. I mean, I def, definitely have read that they were. They were leaving the island at the start of the revolution. Went to Miami and New York, and I mean, what this is the other thing that happens is it is during the '60s, and we'll come to this in a future episode in more detail. But it's during the '60s that New, New York becomes increasingly becomes this the most, com- the, arguably the most compelling center for kind of you know Latin and Afro-Cuban music. Uh, Fanny Rule Stars ends up opening in '68, and there's this there is this kind of mig- migration, I think, of many Cuban musicians. Um, but you, I, I don't know enough about the kind of year by year development. Um, but I do know that certainly some musicians were kind of moving. I mean, the, the moving at the end, towards the beginning of the sixties, and not just at the end of the sixties. Um, but how much music carried on despite that? Um, it's, I, I, it's hard to kind of. I don't. I just don't know. But there is the. I mean, there is this thing that's kind of quite interesting to to. Uh, note, uh, which is, I think the I think the nightclub industry did go into some kind of decline. I mean, yeah, nightclubs yeah, and the, cabarets, well, the night, and that's the where musicians were getting a lot of their work. There was, yeah. the, I mean, one of the tw- beautiful, I mean, very compelling, uh, sort of almost provocative twists of this moment is there was less work for musicians. Um, you know, our, you know, at least what I know is there was there was kind of there was less in it was a less intense period of creativity. Uh, and maybe, maybe even notably, but for the first time ever, you know, musicians were sort of guaranteed a wage, a living wage, basically, as, as because of they were, you know, citizens of a of a socialist and then a communist state. So there were less opportunities, maybe, for them to play music, but they had a, a lot more economic security than they'd ever had, had before. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the nightclub industry had relied upon the the presence in places like Havana of a, a very affluent, you know, bourgeoisie, exactly. basically. Yeah, and they, so they were leaving. So the, the point is, this wasn't because of direct state intervention in the music industry. Direct state intervention in the music industry starts in the late sixties, but certainly the decline of you know Havana stops being one of these places that we've talked about on the show before, where without anybody really having intentionally designed it that way, the, the, the presence of a, a, to be honest, the, the presence of a lot of pretty loose money, basically, mm. creates a sort of penumbra within which artists are able to sort of get, you know, 
make quite a bit of money just supporting and into partly supporting and entertaining kind of mm. affluent affluent and i wouldn't say bohemian but culturally libertarian so capitalists basically mm. i mean that's arguably i mean that's part of the condition for the new york bohemia of the 70s yeah no part. yeah you're completely and right that, about that and those yeah, and yeah. those conditions those conditions of course are, are removed very very quickly but a lot of musicians are still there on the island and and the, their report they report being relatively free to continue playing whatever music they wanted to play until the late sixties, when there there is a real sort of clampdown, which is part of the really part of a global turn against a popular culture of certain kinds on the part of the communist international communist movement. But I think we should talk about that when we get to the late sixties. So you're saying it was a nationalisation of a whole bunch of small record companies, and they were effectively maintained operating as small record I don't companies. Know but what they stru- I don't know what their structural mode of operation was. What I know is, just the word nationalisation, all it means is the profits now all go to the state. It doesn't necessarily imply that the state is dictating what how those profits are generated. And it's and after '68, there's this turn to an actual national cultural policy where the state is trying to intervene in, in the actual, in actual cultural output, like the actual content of what's being produced, like the actual music. So I don't know mm. whether what well, I don't know whether it was exactly the same people doing it. I don't know like what was going mm. on in the studios, like in ter- I don't know what was going on at the level of middle management. What I know is what was being produced in the studios didn't dramatically change until about until the late sixties. Okay, I mean the other thing is that the idea that the the, the rumba was was actually which had been somewhat um, sidelined and and disparaged at least in within official circles, I think was was sort of effectively re, you know supported, regenerated, and celebrated by the Castro government because it was seen to be a kind of a music and culture that that grew out of you know um, ex-slave and within working class communities. So that would be interesting to know if there was like an acceleration of rumba uh, recordings during this period. Yeah, that's right. I don't know about recordings. I mean, all I know about is just general musical activity. And indeed, there was yeah, there was sort of there were. Gen- I mean, generally in the first few years of the re- the revolution, the regime was sympathetic to the rumba, and then it became much more negative about anything that was perceived as having been a commercial form from the late sixties mm. onwards, which is um, part. They go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there was. We'll come. We're going to come to this a bit later. I think um, when we when we get to Cuban music in the seventies, but there was also because it reflects on what whatever is going on in the second half of the sixties. There was the um, this organization was you know a state or a state led ensemble was formed in 1967 called the Orchestra Cubana de Musica Moderna, and this was partly a response. Well, well, we'll come back to this, but I'm just thinking there was clearly some form of quite active state intervention because jazz had been disparaged as a sort of imperial music uh, and been kind of you know had been effectively, from what I understand it, more or less banned effectively. Um, but then there was this a sort of a somewhat um, slippery shift in approach from from the from the government, uh, in which they formed this orchestra to effectively make jazz music. Though they weren't going to call it jazz music, but they they needed a kind. They wanted to promote an idea that there was kind of the you know cult. It was Cuba was more culturally open than 
than some people were suggesting, in part because of its relationship to jazz. I mean, jazz was this ideological weapon, as we've already discussed when we were going through some of doing some of the episodes on on African music earlier on in this series. But the way that jazz was a kind of the the Americans were sponsoring kind of you know jazz musicians to go and tour. You know, numerous. Yeah, I just thought, oh, weren't we going to talk about this in point three? Yeah, yeah, well, we're going to come back to it, but I'm just saying that in the late 60s, we've got this. Maybe this is too much of a digression, but well, look, we've got this okay, point look, of, of state. The whole, yeah, the whole point is there's this big wave from the late 60s of, and it's not just in Cuba, it's associated with the Comintern's reaction to 1968 and with the Cultural Revolution in China. So there's a big wave of sort of reaction, of anti popular, sort of cultural. Mm-hmm. Or sort of, I would say sort of cultural conservatism amongst the international sort of communist leaderships. And I would say this is all symptomatic of an anxiety which runs through the communist tradition th- from the early 20th century about how you relate to popular cultural forms, which are also commercial forms. How do you relate to the fact that the vernacular culture, the culture of the people, is also the product of the culture industry. And essentially, it's a, it's a very complicated question, and it's not one to which there's ever a consistent answer. And usually, there's the significant shifts from you know one decade or even one year to the next, in the, as there are in the Soviet Union, as there are in China, as there are in all socialist countries. And so what you're seeing in Cuba is similarly. You see, initially, they don't really have time to even have a cultural policy. Indeed, they nationalise the culture industry the same way they nationalise all major industries. But there isn't a great deal of interest in intervening in the actual content of culture. Then from about 68, from about 68, which is rough, pretty much coincides with the Cultural Revolution in China. It's been going for a couple of years already. Coincides with the suppression of the Prague Spring. Coincides with a turn against a kind of reaction against the detente and liberalisation in the Soviet Union. Uh, it's the reaction where they eventually put Brezhnev in power in the Soviet Union. Um, there is a more of a turn towards the idea that well, anything that is the product of the culture industry, anything that's the product of the capitalist bourgeois or petty bourgeois um, commercial culture is is bad, is bourgeois and has to be replaced, it has to be substituted with something else. But exactly what that something else is, of course, no one can ever quite agree. Like for the hardcore Maoists, it's some weird facsimile, it's kind of weird, weird, incredibly simplistic kind of ditties supposedly based on, on pe- peasant songs, or it's sort of marching songs to, to march along to when you're going to the fields or war. And then, but then for others, for other kind of intellectuals in in the communist movement internationally, it's you know they they want to advocate for it being kind of avant-gardism of various kinds. They want to advocate for you know quite kind of strenuous forms of avant-garde music. And so you see those in Cuba, you see emerging quite quickly from that moment of the sort of suppression of popular forms. You see support for indeed kind of some kinds of experimental jazz because there are some people who have gotten jobs running things like the institute for you know film and media and cultural production in cuba who are you know they're communists but they're also intellectuals and they're they're advocating for these quite self-consciously experimental forms so and i i think that is the and that and then after a few years of relative suppression you know there's a shift in policy in cuba and from the mid 70s the sort of mid late 70s there's a a general recognition that the suppression of popular vernacular forms has been unsuccessful and, and didn't really work and and there's a lot more support for them again and and some musicians start moving back and others 
um, and there's more freedom to start producing kind of dance music forms, in, dance music in particular, from the kind of late 70s onwards. But the point is, is they're all responses to shifts in policy. And they're all, and those shifts in policy are the, in themselves really the outcome of quite big strategic debates going on within the international communist movement. But I think we really, in terms of the narrative, we have to get back to the, the 1963. Yes, I'm a, we're going to do that right now. Um, because, yeah, the I mean, whatever, whatever the, the detail of what's, what's going on in Cuba, the reality of the embargo was that it interrupted the flow of Cuban music outside of Cuba, uh, irrespective of what was going on inside of Cuba. Um, and that whereas Cuba had become somewhat, you know, you know, was this growing influence, clear growing influence uh, in the United States in in the run up to the the revolution, and then the embargo from from that point onwards, it was uh, it went into um, quite rapid decline. Ned Sablet, um, who's the author of this book, Cuba and Cuba and its music, which is a you know. A, Big, big book and an authoritative book on Cuba um, does note that um, by the time people began to talk about rock and roll as having a history, Cuban music had vanished from North American consciousness. Um, I think it's one of one of the things that happened is again because of the embargo when Cuban songs were covered by uh, American artists, uh, the songwriters uh, were listed as DR. Uh, which stands for derechos reservados, uh, right reserved, uh, and they also received no royalties. The idea of Cuba and Cuba music and you know Cuba musicianship was kind of extinguished uh, during this period um, in a way that's kind of hard to imagine, obviously, in kind of the you know days of the internet and the rest of it. Um, but it really was kind of uh, it was kind of wiped off off the face of. Of the, Ameri- of the American imagination when it came to some music. So it was in 1963 that the Kingsman uh, recorded this track, Louis Louis. It was a record that had actually been composed uh, in 1955 by a guy called Richard Berry, who was an African-American singer, songwriter, a musician. Uh, but it was the uh, 1963 version by the Kingsman that turned it into this kind of rock and roll classic uh this sort of standard in pop music uh one of the kind of definitely one of the most kind of legendary records of the second half of the 20th century uh cornerstone record within you know that also marked the bridge i think on some level between rock and roll and rock music um so let's have a quick listen to the kingsman louis louis Oh, we definitely uh, make, make. we gotta go now. <laughs> I think we, we, who needs the original? <laughs> who needs it? It's not the original. Who needs a Kingsman when we got a Gem Gilbert? Um, wow. So yeah. Uh, so so the uh, so the the song was actually this this recording of the, the song the original song Louis Louis was inspired in fact however by a Rene Touzet's track or song called El Loco Cha-Cha, which was from 1957. 
So René Touzet was a, a Cuban-born American composer, pianist, and uh, he also went on to become the leader of what was uh, considered by many to be the number one Latin band in Los Angeles. He'd grown up in the city of Cojimar, learned, learned sort of, you know, learned piano when he was young, went to study at the Falcon Conservatory in Havana, um, you know, had to give up his classical training because of poverty. Um, and at that point, uh, went to play as a pianist in uh, Luis Rivera's jazz band in Havana, then became his own, an orchestra leader of his own orchestra um, eventually. Um, and um, after his club was kind of, which he opened in, in Cuba, was destroyed in 1944 by apparently a hurricane, uh, he moved to the United States uh, and joined a, joined a band um, led by Enric Madriguera and then f- formed his own orchestra in the mid-1950s and recorded a whole whole number of albums uh, between 1955 and 64. And it included uh, this, his 19, this 1957 recording of El Loco Chacha, which so was this kind of Cuban music effectively transplanted into uh, the United States. And the point to make here is that if we're listening to the if we're listening to the Kingsman version of Louis Louis or any of the versions of Louis Louis, we can say that you know the Cuban elements are not an exotic detail. They're not sort of added on for a kind of to create a kind of Cuban effect. Um, it was ab- it's absolutely fundamental to the to the very structuring of the song, and this is something that uh, Richard Berry would would note later. And it does tap into this. Uh, uh, dance this Cuban dance, the cha cha cha, um, which I can't remember if, if, how much we discussed that, if at all, last time. Um, but it was this kind of this music and dance that um, evolved in, um, especially in the uh, early nineteen uh, fifties, um, and became, you know, again an inter- uh, an international craze um, based around this particular kind of this particular rhythm that was you know evolved out of a, a, a cuban cuban dance gatherings and music that was made made for these uh, gatherings and well, let's just can we just pause for a moment there yeah, to really just yeah. reflect on the significance of this yes. this is louis this is louis louis okay everyone knows this tune this is as you say this is one of the this is the iconic not one it is the iconic record found sort of foundational record of american garage rock and it is actually a cover of a cha-cha-cha record with that record and anyone who will have heard that clip you know will immediately record it's immediately recognizable like when i first learned i only learned about this when we were researching the show and i thought yeah maybe there'll be a passing resemblance but if you you'd only have to hear the opening chords of that original cha-cha-cha record to say oh my oh it's louis louis they're playing louis louis that's louis louis it's absolutely mind-blowing it's absolutely extraordinary and and this is cuban music absolutely central the most we already said this in the last episode the most popular form basically arguably you know of the anglo-american recording industry in the 50s it's absolutely formational to give to rock and roll in some ways and yet basically because of the the continuation of the embargo because of kennedy's commitment to the cold war really in the early 60s cuban music just gets completely officially pushed out of american music and american musical recording culture uh in the early 60s it's just absolutely an extraordinary uh, phenomenon 
It is, and it's. Um, I mean, it's an. It's also a radical form of. You know, it's a form of colonization or appropriation because there is no. The point is, is you know, as we we both both commenting really. There's no acknowledgement that there's any Cuban element in here. There's no attribution. Cuba just doesn't even exist in the American mm-hmm. imagination at this place at uh, this time as a place that can really can be gen- can generate anything other than kind of you know reactionary communist you know threats and these are these are the con- freedom these are the conditions of the british invasion as well these are the conditions under which the the british suburban interpretation of the blues becomes the dominant idiom of popular music in the fir- in the 60s this but that that's surely that can't happen you it can't happen that these like white boys from fucking like surbiton and from like croydon and and the, the suburbs of let me stress the suburbs of liverpool you know become <laughs> like the dominant musical figures if it's not for the fact that the cubans who who are clearly making better music let's be fair you know us are sent packing they're sent off stage as a sort of punishment for having done the most successful socialist revolution of the 20th century <laughs> it's really extraordinary but it is i mean what what sort of the thing that is puzzling is that the there was there were already a number of cuban musicians this is sort of indisputable who had for what whatever the conditions might have been to being in terms of the Cuban music industry, the ability of Cuban musicians to record the music they wanted to during the 1960s and make a living out of it. However good or otherwise that might have been, a number of Cuban musicians also went to live in the United States during this period. And they were getting involved in forming bands and recording music. And still it was possible for Louis Louis to be celebrated as, you know, as a foundational record of rock and roll and garage rock, you know, recorded, uh, you know, by, you know, Americans, American musicians rather than Cuban musicians. So you're right to draw attention to just how extraordinary this situation really is. I mean, we could even say even more extraordinary is just how long the kind of delusion or the cover-up has been has been maintained. Yeah, I should say the the Rolling Stones were from Dartford. From Dartford, you can edit that. In. <laughs> from Dartford, <laughs> but it's also it's something about the blues. There's, there's something going on here about the kind of overvaluation of the over-centralization of the blues in 20th century music. I think because of what's the, that's where I, I'm thinking my spontaneous thought about what is the cost of leaving out the centrality of Cuban music. It's it's instead of this story that we're trying to tell now, you get the what becomes the official story of rock history, mm. which is that basically everything comes from the blues. Exactly. And we're not saying the blues isn't massively important, which I've always found unpersuasive. I've always thought the blues, like, I, I mean, I love old blues, and, I, and you, oh, there's no question that the pentatonic scale and the blues techniques, really important for jazz, really important for... Uh, the development of rock and roll and soul and other uh, cognizant forms of music. But I've always found it kind of unpersuasive, that narrative that's basically everything comes from Robert Johnson because there just isn't the kind of percussive complexity or the sheer joie de vivre, which is necessary to make rock and roll a popular form and the other kinds of dance music popular and even certain kinds of jazz popular. If it's all from the 50s onwards, if it's all just coming from, you know, Robert Johnson, basically. And... And this is the, this is the key missing thing from that story. The key missing thing from that story is is yes. Cuban music. Well, Richard Berry, who is the composer of the song, uh, is quoted as saying, "It was an R and B dance song, 
and it was still a cha-cha. At that time, everyone was doing the cha-cha-cha. So he's saying it's R&B, uh, but it's also cha-cha. But again, we just got to remember that the song was written in 1955, pre-embargo. Um, it was all this music was circulating. There was nothing, there was no shame in this. This is exactly how many musicians and based in the United States were responding um, to Cuban music. But then I think it's how many years later is it? Six, is it six years later? Seven years later, five to seven years later, you have the embargo uh, becoming, you know, tighter and introduced and becoming tighter and tighter. And then sort of Cuba gets to be completely extinguished. And so what is indeed left is this, the story of rhythm and blues, even though the, so the composer himself is saying it's R&B, but also it's a cha-cha-cha, but that gets to be revised. So yeah, so we we ha- we have we have the we have the clear influence of Cuban music on the kind of you know the rise of rock and roll and, and early rock even early rock music as well, um, and that this carries on through through the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. You know we can hear we can hear you know maracas in Chuck Berry's Maybelline. We you know Bo Diddley has a Latin tinge. And it's during the 1960s that gradually New York City emerges as the new central location for Latin music, you know, arguably above above Havana. Um, and it was in New York City that Cuban styles got to mix with Puerto Rican, um, you know, elements and other kind of Latin sounds that were also beginning to settle in into the city, as well as funk and soul and jazz, of course. And all of these, all of these elements, and we're just I'm just going to mention it in passing here to give a sense of, of how it reflects on Cuba. But we are going to return to this uh, for a separate episode at the very end of this series. Uh, it's in it's in this kind of setting with all these different elements uh, pouring into it, that the Fanny All-Stars uh, were created in, in 1968. And then a, a, effectively a couple of years later, salsa music breaks through in, in New York City. Um, and a lot of it is, of course, inspired uh, by Puerto Rican musicians. But Cuba's influence um, is arguably the greatest of all, but is, uh, but is somewhat submerged because of, indeed, the uh, ongoing embargo and uh, marginalization of, of, of Cuban culture. You're listening to Love is the Message. Hi, you're listening to Love is the Message, but you probably know that. And we're really grateful for everybody who's listening. Um, we're also really grateful for the support we've been getting from patrons. And if you'd like to become one of them, you can easily sign up uh, at patreon.com. Uh, there'll be a link in the notes. And if you do that, then you get the benefit of not listening to any more of these begging messages. Uh, We've been really pleased with the support the show's been getting so far. We're basically on track to sort of keep meeting our target of making it viable. Uh, But at the same time, you know, it has turned into a project which I think is um, probably more satisfying than we expected, but also more work than we expected. It's turning into, I think, a sort of unique intellectual endeavour, really, this podcast. So if you can support it, Uh, we'd really be grateful. Um, If you can't, don't worry, keep listening. But you'll have to keep listening to these begging messages. So um, sort of going back to, to Cuba... There will, there is this kind of interesting. There are these interesting developments um, during the 1960s, and in particular in in the late 1960s, 
Um, my understanding, at least, is that jazz music, which was becoming very, had become very popular, um, you know, extremely popular in Havana, um, was branded uh, and marginalized by the state. Uh, because it was supposedly, you know, a weapon of American imperialism. And it's fair to say, you know, on some sort of objective level that the US did understand jazz in these terms and was using it as one of a, a supposed sort of ideological demonstration of American f- freedom that challenged um, the lack of freedom that the communist USSR model was supposedly advocating. Yeah, jazz and abstract expressionism. Yes, jazz and abstract so. <laughs> expressionism yes, were right. pr- actively pr- celebrated by the CIA, the liberal wing of the CIA, as these thi- as these weapons in the ideological war against communism, because they showed that America, ce- as Tim said, celebrated freedom. Mm. It's really interesting, it's a fascinating mm. bit of bit of cultural history that. But uh, it yeah. would have to be said. Jazz, they just appropriated. They they pointed to jazz and said, "Look, we've got jazz. We must be cool." They didn't really do anything to financially support it. Abstract expressionism, they fucking invented, basically. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> well, they, they, they did. They did support. They did support some of the tours, I think, but they didn't. Yeah, support they the supported some of the of, some of the European tours. They did, but ja- yeah. I mean, we don't have time to get into this. Here. Well, also like, to Ethiopia, we were talking about Ethiopia. I remember now when we were talking about um, Duke Ellington, wasn't it, who went to Ethiopia and was supported by. That's right. Uh, that is right. Some Americans. of those those tours were supported. Yeah, but, 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 anyway. it, but in the in the visual art, it's highly questionable whether Jackson Pollock, for example, would have had any career at all without the CIA backing. It's true. <laughs> it's know. not just me. Yeah, yeah. It's true. It's yeah, not, yeah. It's not. No, it's interesting. Um, so, I mean, the, one other thing to sort of note is that I mean, I think there were these sheets, these shifts going on in the late '60s in Cuba. I find them slightly contradictory, and I'm not sure I totally sort of un- understand them. Maybe they just were a bit contradictory. But I think from the, in the last two years of the decades, or '68 through to '70, uh, there was the introduction uh, by Castro of the revolutionary offensive, uh, and I think uh, there was there were apparently fi- you know 58,000 remaining small businesses were nationalised. And there was also this drive to produce 10 million tons of sugar by 1970. So there were some shifts going on in the kind of domestic policy. Uh, and this did apparently lead to many Cuban musicians going to end up volunteering in the fields. Stuart Baker, um, who runs run Soul Jazz and, and issued these two Cuban compilations in, in collaboration with Giles Peterson, writes in, in the, the liner notes to, I think it's the first of those compilations, uh, the Afro-Cuban music, this is by like late 60s, early 70s, Afro-Cuban music uh, now found itself with few spaces left to be heard and many musicians found themselves in the unique position of collecting pay but but no work. Um, and he adds that by the end of the of of nineteen of the nineteen sixties, state cultural intervention was proving an albatross around the neck of many a musician, closing more doors than it was opening, including hundreds of nightclubs. So the argument of Stewart, and I, I don't know, you know, um, I don't know enough about Cuban music to be able to kind of say if he's completely correct about this or not. But the view is that you know Cuban music was sort of struggling by the end of the 1960s or early 1970s for its sense of of dynamism and innovation and sort of you know commercial the commercial support it might be able to receive in certain settings and yet there was also this kind of interesting development that in um i think it's 19 
67, the Cuban government also formed the Orchestra Cubana de Musica Moderna, um, known as the OCMM, um, which was the Cuban government's res- you know, reaction to apparently a number of left-wing people still visiting Cuba, uh, attending got a conferences and meetings, and the government deciding to renege or to or to back down uh, somewhat somewhat on its attempt to you know marginalize jazz or just brand it as a kind of you know reactionary imperial expression and so this orchestra was was founded to start effectively creating jazz music but without calling the music jazz so musica moderna was in a way jazz music but it wasn't called jazz music many of the musicians in cuba again this is according to stuart baker were you know were very very into jazz and this is what they really wanted to be playing so this group became became an avenue for that and um it became one of these you know a, a state sponsored organization that allowed big, a, a, a certain regeneration of, you know, a form of musical expression that at least for parts of the 1960s had been somewhat marginalized. So let's, let's have a listen to, to this, this group, uh, the Orchestra Cubana de Musica Moderna. And this is The Man I Love. And it's, I think, a, a recording from a live concert. Uh, I believe it was in 1967. So it's kind of it's con- it's contemporary jam, uh, jazz music with a, a, a significant kind of you know swing and big band kind of element. This band was led by an arranger and composer Armado Romu, um, who had previously been the director of an in-house band called the uh, at the Tropicana Club, and the orchestra released his albums at least according to the collection assembled on discogs or the listings assembled on discogs in first 60s 1967 69 7 and then 72 and, and one year which is unknown um and the what one of the kind of key figures uh, in that band was the saxophonist called Paquito or Paquito de, de Rivera um, who would go on to also become a future co-founder and assistant director of Erekere, um, who we're going to want to talk about a bit more in just in just a moment. And De Rivera, uh, De Rivera, sorry, um, had directed this orchestra for a couple of years, and uh, but he he said in an interview that when 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 he decided that he wanted to only play jazz music in the orchestra because this is what he he and the other musicians were into, uh, he got fired. Uh, and he said after a while the orchestra ceased to fun- ceased to achieve the function that it was created for and disappeared. So it was in this kind of little vacuum that had kind of emerged that in 1973, another member of the OCMM, uh, this orchestra, Chucho Valdez, um, who had also led his own jazz combo during the 1960s, uh, formed Erika Ray, um, effectively out of uh, the remnants of the OCE, OCMM, and also joined up with... Um, 
uh, De Rivera and um, a number of other musicians who had been part of the OCMM. And they called themselves, uh, one of whom didn't join immediately, but soon after, who's a, a, a very well-known musician called Arturo Sandoval, uh, who was a trumpet player. Oh, and that's they, where Sandoval comes from. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure what his background was because I've been pl- I've been rinsing a tune of his at Beauty and the Beat the past year. People absolutely love it. It's fantastic. Um, oh, right. What is it? Sh- uh, it's it's called just something like fest- Festival or something. Okay. Um, Carnival. I can't read. It's a live recording from mm. the 70s sometime. It's oh, great. absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. yeah, this is where he so he was part of the of Erikere. They're an incredible band, actually. And just to say that Erikere is a Yoruban a word that means forest. Uh, remember from the last episode that you know the the capital of the of the uh, of the Yoruba, of the Yoruba was was uh, the capital city was located. It was a forest city, um, and. Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, what, one of the things to comment about Arikare is that all of its, you know, its music, its founding members and its musicians, you know, were basically completed their, a lot of their musical training uh, in the orchestra, and were also playing jazz in a number of different quartets uh, and other li- quintets and other lineups that were created within the um, this orchestra, the OCMM. And Irikare as a group, uh, a combined um, Afro-Cuban folkloric music uh, with Cuban popular dance music, with funk and jazz and even elements of, of classical music. Um, and according to the members, there were some restrictions uh, placed on the band by the government. So it's Arturo Sandoval um, uh, there's a, there's a, made a comment uh, in which he said, we wanted to play bebop, but we were told that our drummer couldn't even use cymbals because they sounded too, too jazzy, in, in quote marks. We event- and he says, we eventually <coughs> used congas and cowbells instead because they, they just wanted to play uh, jazz music, like American jazz music. In a way. Yeah. Uh, but we eventually used congas and cowbells instead, and in the end it helped us to come up with something new and creative. So uh, let's have a listen to one of the uh, early uh, Irakere, uh tracks, and this is Bacalo con Pan, which is the opening track uh, on the Irikare's eponymous first album released in 1974. <laughs> So we hear on here that the congas and the cowbells are obviously you know, are prominent. Uh, the recording also features a pr- uh, use of the bata and other Afro-Cuban folkloric drums. And this was the first time that the Ricaray had used the, the bata. Um, and this track that we've just heard, Bacalao Compan, combines indeed folkloric drums, jazzy dance sounds and rhythms. And also very prominently, this distorted electric guitar, which is processed through the wah-wah pedal. And uh, Raul Fernandez, who is a musicologist based at UC Irvine, uh, notes that um, the the orchestra, uh, the OCMM, wouldn't have allowed the musicians to record this kind of unconventional kind of record. 
Um, and actually, the musicians travelled to Santiago to record it. And somehow the tune, this is, a, this is a quote from Fernandez, somehow the tune made it from Santiago to radio stations in Havana, where it became a hit. Iracare was formally organised a little bit later. So this was recorded in this transitional moment from the OCMM to the very found, the, the, the actual formal formation of, of Iracare. Interestingly, some of the, a number of the founding musicians of Arikare didn't uh, necessarily like the band's fusion of jazz and Afro-Cuban elements, and some of the Cuban folk elements were judged to be a sort of, you know, a sort of symbol of, of nationalism, effectively, and sort of there to sort of disguise what the, you know, their real love, which was was jazz music. Um, and yet, at the same time, uh, fig leaf or not, uh, they're, what the, the music they came out with you know, changed Cuban popular music and would go on to change kind of Latin jazz and salsa. Uh, as De, De Rivera uh, would you know, later comment, we did not know that we were going to have such an impact in jazz and Latin music around the world. We were just working to do something good. Um, so yeah, there's, there was a lot of, uh, you know, Iricare were very experimental in their early years. I mean, I think they went to gain some level of international or significant level of international notoriety in the second half of the seventies and in particular the early eight, maybe the first half of the 1980s. So it's a little bit ahead of where we are in the timeline. So we'll probably get back to that in about maybe three years time or something. Um, but, um, anyway, this, yeah, it was a very, this was, this was, a, it was the, I think the point is that out of a difficult period or a difficult decade for Latin musicians in which transitions were going on in the Cuban economy, uh, and around <laughs> Cuban culture and around the embargo, of course, that meant that they, you know, and, and the nightclub industry that meant that there were sort of certainly difficulties they were encountering that they hadn't been necessarily used to. Uh, for the pre in the previous decades, somehow or other, um, out of you know this confluence of factors in the in the very late 1960s and early 1970s, there was this kind of regeneration and rebirth of music, and Arikare were at the at the cutting edge of that. Yes, they definitely were. Yes, <clears throat> them, and I guess the next thing we might hear are, are really interesting examples of Afro psychedelia. I think. This mixture of fusion of this very self-consciously Afro-diasporic music, but of a form quite distinctive from what's going on in continental North America, and but also having a, this very psychedelic kind of experimentation and this kind of fusion-influenced uh, mix mixture of electric and acoustic instruments, it's really compelling. Um, so, should I talk about Grupo de Experimentación? Yes, I'd love you to do that. So, well, I mean, I don't know loads about them. Uh, I've been researching. Grupo de Experimentación uh, del Sonora, which I think just means, uh, does it just mean, we should have got some of these translations. I think this is a quite, quite an easy one to translate. But it just means sa experimentation <laughs> in sound, the group, doesn't The group it? of experimental sounds. Or yeah, experimental but that is sounds. what Sonora means, isn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Okay, That's, I assumed it was, but I wasn't sure. I realized at this moment, I didn't know for sure. So they came out of an, an institute that was set up in 1969. The, I think the translation of the name of the institute is the Cuban Institute for Cin Cinematographic uh, Arts and Industries. So this is sort of like the uh, department. The film industry. It's the yeah. art and film industry. 
But it's the, I think it's the art, I think it's the cinematic arts and industries is what it means. If you see what I mean, so it oh, means yeah, it's an institute yeah. for the film, filmic arts and industries. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that indeed that they would be self consciously, um, they would be self consciously experimental and avant garde. I think the band was founded by the president of the institute, who was Alfredo Guevara. And the director of the group was uh, was named uh, Leo. Uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Brewer, B R O U W E R. And yeah, they were ma- they were doing a sort of. I mean, really, it was a sort of. Um, pr- I mean, it was sort of prog rock, actually. A lot of it, it was a sort of experimental avant garde sound obviously drawing on the kind of European avant-garde that was influenced by you know, people like Boulet and the kind, and it's really reminiscent to me of things like the kind of very left field sort of progressive rock of people like Henry Cow, uh, who was sim, who were, you know, very, although, they, although there's a Henry Cow early seventies, British group well, actually started in the early seventies, went on for years. They were all at Oxford. They were all students from Oxford, but they all considered themselves committed revolutionary Marxists. Mm. Uh, and it's, so we we're could hear the, a track. There's also the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. It sounds like almost similar. To, so yeah, maybe it's, it's got some parallels with that. I mean, it's I like it a state-sponsored yeah. place to kind of you know just do really yeah, experimental right. kind of sounds. And uh, <clears throat> it, yeah, it does suggest that you know. The state-sponsored music can can come up with some really interesting uh, recordings, you know. In certain conditions, it's not always about stifling creativity to have the state sponsor the musicians to go into a studio. No, that's right. So their first, their self-titled, self-titled first album, it comes out in I think seventy-three. And again, it's clearly is influenced by people I've been mentioning, people like. Pink Floyd as well. Actually, that's probably the most direct comparison. Uh, actually, 74, 74, I think it comes out. Um, and the first track on the album is called Grandma. <laughs> But you you can't get that much of a sense from one clip because it is you know it's very reminiscent to those big instrumental Floyd albums like you know um, I don't know Source of Full of Secrets or something like that. So, uh, but as you say, Tim, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I don't. I think that in some ways, any sort of judgment about whether it's good to have the state sponsoring music or not is not really or whether it creates conditions for creativity i think it sort of misses the point that you you can have arrangements which are basically commercial and market driven and, and profit oriented and you can have arrangements which are not which are and which are state sponsored and state organized and in each on each side of that divide you can have ways of organizing the production and distribution of music which just you know only facilitate very conformist very um non-creative kinds of music and on the and you can have ways of organizing musical production which are very creative um 
I think probably it's the issue is not so much who owns the who who gets all the profits, but exactly how the distribution of decision making is really organised to some extent. It's an interesting mm. question, though. Yeah, I think it's something we can come back to another time to talk about the kind of economics of musical creativity, maybe. <laughs> Because it's kind of it's rich and it's interesting and probably quite complex, but yeah, it's certainly. I mean, you'd certainly, I would certainly kind of guess that if everything is going to be, you know, centralized and state controlled, and that you know, there's there's that some of the dynamism of musicians wanting to kind of you know go off in spontaneous directions um, without necessarily kind of having to check in and check out or fill out a form you know would be would be stifled but it's also clearly the case that where you want to you want music to be created that isn't going to appeal to a, a, a commercial market in a straightforward way that to create a place where musicians can enjoy some freedom and get some you know and get some uh money in order to be able to go and do, do this is not necessarily can, can have really amazing results as well love is love is love is the message yeah let's move on to just discuss one more group that kind of emerged out of this period of the late 1960s and then contributed to this you know uh, revitalization of Cuban music during the first half of the 1970s, and that is the group Los Van Van. Um, so the, the 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 immediate roots of Los Van Van is uh, the charanga and the charanga groups in particular that had kind of you know really been quite a dominant, if not the dominant force in Cuban music culture between the 1930s to the 1950s. And they had really been formed out of traditional ensembles that played uh, Cuban dance music. And the, in, the material was often very son-influenced. Uh, son uh, and also the, it was often performed with European instruments, including uh, in particular the violin and the flute. And a lot of the music that was going to be played uh, with, with the charanga is, is danzon music. Um, but by the end of the 1960s, again, we got reached this kind of key turning point. Um, these sounds were seen to be somewhat dated, in particular, the, any, anything that was, you know, included the playing of flutes and violins. And uh, the musical director of a charango group uh, called Orchestra Orchestra Reve y Su Charangon, uh, who was called uh, Juan Formel, um, left the orchestra, uh, Orchestra Reve, uh, to form Los Van Van in, in 1969. And Formel's idea was to, to kind of revitalize Tarango by incorporating elements of not only uh, son, which were, was already there, but also, you can almost guess what I'm about to say now, funk, rock, and jazz. So let's have a listen to a Los Van Van track um, that captures some of these elements. Uh, and this is a, a track called Chirin Chiran, which is the second track from their al eponymous album uh, released in 1973. <laughs> Oh. 
So this effectively uh, is is the a music that went on to form uh, become known as a new sound, and this is the songo, um, and that Chirin Chiran is a, is an early classic within this kind of this nascent genre, um, and it did go on to become the most popular style on the island. Um, and sort of, and really led to the return in popularity of uh, Afro-Cuban dance music uh, later on in the 1980s and 1990s. But that also is a story for a, for a much later episode. Um, but with Songo, one of the things we hear um, is that the timbales are expanded um, and they're also uh, complemented with a kick bass drum and sometimes also a snare drum and a hi-hat. Um, the, the, this new sound also uses uh, a Cuban style timbale and drum kit hybrid um, arguably songo was the first Cuban popular dance rhythm to, that, would, that would blend rumba as well as North American funk rhythms um, and, this, and songo percussion in general was, was very heavily influenced also by rumba um, but maybe the thing that's one one of the things that's also most characteristic of this of this sound that is kind of is more or less invented by Los Van Van is that it's a very soulful type of music. Uh, so indeed, the the band leader Juan Formel um, says uh, that, and I quote: "It is the synthesis of a personality, of a way of being and feeling the music, a sum of cultures, and a way of making a musician into someone polyfacetic." polyphacetic and original so you know this is this this kind of a, i think this kind of it's probably the last track we're going to play on in this week's show and it's just really it's just really fascinating that in a in a time of embargo and a point when cuba doesn't even is fairly recognized as existing as a you know a place where human beings live um, during uh, the, the 1960s and go running of course through to the 1970s uh, when there's almost no kind of straightforward communication taking place between, you know, the United States of America and Cuba, that in this moment there can be this incredibly, this incredibly powerful flourishing uh, of music and innovation that is, you know, often combining, tradi- you know, traditional and uh, native Cuban elements uh, with contemporary American music. Um, you know, but you know, in particular, in particular, jazz, but also increasingly rock and funk. So, um, just, just, uh, I suppose that that must that also just speaks to you know Cuba's long history of being of being an island where you know it was continually, indeed, absorbing and having to react to foreign elements, and you know, learn to kind of you know maybe learn to, to do this kind of inherently as part of its kind of musical practice. Anyway. Somehow or other, we end up with this period of kind of, you know, intense creativity during the first half of the 1970s. As we do everywhere, you know, as we do all over the place. And that, as we keep saying, that massive, that intense wave and peak of creativity in the early 70s is not really separable from this global process of revolution against capitalism, against colonialism and its legacies. And Cuba is absolutely one of the epicenters of that. All right, let's. That's great. Um, fascinating stuff. I just we could. I really. There's something I want to learn loads more about. What do we? So next time we're doing more Caribbean islands, aren't we? Yeah, um, I believe we're going to. Uh, we're doing Trinidad and Haiti and Guadeloupe. 
The small islands, as people in Jamaica. Not all of them. But people in Jamaica call them. I'm not calling them that. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, so you're shifting responsibility for that, are you? As, as always. Um, so, <laughs> like, when, when, when will you take responsibility? For never. never. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make me. So thank you, everyone. That's great. Yeah, uh, please. Thanks. Um, the yeah the reviews and ratings on the i on the podcast apps have been going up as have the patron subscriptions that we're really grateful keep it coming next week we'll be carrying on with heavy dub theory for the patrons i'm already thinking at some point we're going to have to do a patrons episode about the communism and jazz because it's such a weird and interesting story in the 50s through to the yeah, 80s that's true and um and thanks very much for listening uh, see you next time bye bye